Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the official Tennis.com podcast featuring professional coach and community leader, Kamal Murray. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. I want to take a second and wrap up the WTA, uh, the fall tennis class we had in Chicago, the WTA 500. Uh, It was a great experience for my staff, myself, the city of Chicago, and the players. It was shocking to see how many players had never been to this great city. Uh, the level of competition we had enrolled in this draw was very similar to a Masters 1000. Um, we're forever grateful for the tour uh, to bring that event here, grateful for the players, their spirit, their energy, uh, and the show that they put on. And we hope that they come back. Uh, for me personally, it was a real pleasure having you know people I've, I've competed against, um, traveled with, eaten dinner with in my hometown. Uh, great responsibility to sort of set them up for dinner. Uh, set up practice for them and make sure they had a good experience. And it was, it was a real treat. And I hope I get that opportunity again. And let's take a look at this week. We've got probably the most exciting Indian Wells that we've had in a long time. And I say that because we're going to have an event where there's no Novak, no Nadal, no Federer, no team, no Osaka, no Ash Barty, Halep just coming off an injury. And quite frankly, it is any person's game to win. In tennis, we've long been able to just sit back and bank on one of the big three coming through uh, over the past couple of years. If Osaka's in the draw, you know, she's almost always a lock to win it. And quite frankly, tennis could use a little bit of unpredictability right now. Um, it's going to add a level to a level of excitement to this tournament that has not been there before. And uh, I honestly don't even know who to pick. I mean, it, it's anybody's game, especially on the women's side. I want to take a second to introduce our next, uh, set up our next three podcasts. We had the pleasure of sitting down with Bianca Andrescu, and she was so open, so honest, so charismatic, so conversational, and so revealing. And I think all of us are in for a treat when you listen to this episode. Uh, we talk about uh, the hangover effect and what it's like to win a slam and what that next year is like, what changes, what doesn't change, uh, and how you come back from it. So take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have the pleasure of being with the 2019 U.S. Open champion, Bianca Andrescu from Canada. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Happy to be here. So we'll start off with that. 2017, Sloan won U.S. Open. It was like 900 in the world. You win this Open and then like life changes. Yeah. Right. Tell me about how you go into the tournament not really knowing what to expect and then sort of life changing after that literally life changing i did not expect anything to happen of what happened in 2019 i was going out there just you know the 18 year old you know coming out playing from playing itf tournaments in 2018 i was playing freaking 25ks in kansas city and then 
you know, having that first final in Auckland, beating amazing players was incredible. And then Indian Wells, Rogers Cup, I think all of that helped contribute to my win at the US Open. And plus, I was still considered a little bit of an underdog. So I wasn't expecting anything first of all. I didn't have as much pressure on my back. I just went out there, I gave my best. Um, and funny enough, my coach at the time, Sylvain Bruno, he said that me and Nadal would win the tournament at the beginning of the tournament. And then me and Nadal ended up winning and we just had that joke every day. He would say, oh, you're gonna win it, you're gonna win it. And I guess there's just that positive atmosphere as well that, you know, helped contribute to everything. But afterwards it was, yeah, super overwhelming, but I'm super happy with, you know, everything that happened. <laughs> So I always say, like, you know, people win a Grand Slam. It doesn't really come out of nowhere because, you know, people pay attention to the winner, not the person that made it to the semis or the quarters, yeah. right? But um, Indian Wells happened, Rogers Cup happened. So it takes momentum to also win a slam. Yeah. You know, you look at Naomi won it. She won Indian Wells, yeah. right? You look at uh, Emma, you know, whatever, round of 16 at Wimbledon, and then yeah, she's doing well finals too. here. And so it doesn't really, even when Sloan won it, it was like, send me to Toronto, send me yeah. to Cincinnati. Then yeah. you, you sort of win it there. So yeah. it doesn't always come out of nowhere. But I think from the fan base, they don't always pay attention to, she quartered three weeks ago. She quartered two weeks ago. Yeah. She sent me last week. So this sort of, so like as a coach, to say that we can always tell, like, we're playing well enough. All the off-court stuff is sort of calm exactly. and nice and tight. And the draw sort of aligns. Mm -hmm. Hotel is nice. Yep. Right? You know, all these things. And that there's <laughs> no other, like, distractions around you as well because I didn't have as many. But, you know, with injuries as well, I did have some in 2019, but I recovered from that. So I was just locked in. And it was just like, oh, okay, I won the U.S. Open <laughs> two weeks later. Cause, and so he knew. Because you can always tell. I remember when Sloan went to the finals of the French Open, I was like, she lost like the week before to Putin Saver in the first round. And but we were playing well enough to, to have a good tournament. I said, mm -hmm. when you win, I'll split a Birkin bag with you. <laughs> I didn't have to do it because she lost in the finals. Well, yeah, but. We, we were like a set you, and a half on our way there. But it was like, when you win, you it's like, that really? Feeling. I was like, yeah. Because you could sort of, yeah. everything was sort of calm. We had a good trip, no yeah. drama, playing well, hitting the ball well, practicing, good practice. Yeah. You could sort of see it. So he felt it. So yeah. it didn't totally 100%. come out of nowhere. But 100%. he like, you know your player. So tell me about life after, because we struggled after US Open, right? Tell me about life after where you talked about no pressure, no expectation. Now it's like, oh, you want US Open? Now, every time I play, oh, the next person that plays you is going to have a career win, yeah. right, for them, or like a headlining loss for you. Tell me about the yeah. difference. So the way I handled everything afterwards, I think, was very well because I stayed off social media. Like, I never really went through comments or through other people's posts about me. I just stuck to, you know, being in my zone and focusing on my next tournament. Obviously, when I came back to Toronto, it was a little bit hectic because people like started giving me, um, you know, presents and started asking for my autographs for whatever reason on the side of the street. I never expected that to happen, but um, I enjoyed it because one of my goals is to be able to inspire others 
And I know I can do that through sport because, you know, when I go out there, I can give my best and just show and give a good example to the younger players that, you know, are just starting to come up or even, you know, people who are married or I don't know, because I get messages on Instagram uh, that I did check, but, you know, during quarantine, <laughs> not during everything that happened of people just saying, oh my God, like I started playing tennis because of you. You inspired me to, you know, push through this exam or whatever it is. And to me, that, that gives me so much fulfillment because um, like I said, one of my goals is to be able to accomplish something like that. And having that in mind really helped me push through the last couple of tournaments of the year. Obviously the last tournament I got injured, but um, I stayed in my zone. I didn't really pay attention on what was going around me, and I think that was the key for me. Um, but then, you know, 2020 hit. I didn't play anything in 2020. It was just like completely a year off, which is super rare, especially at, you know, right. an age like that. Um, but that's another story. Maybe you're going to ask a question about that. I don't know, but. Yeah. No, I mean, you know, <laughs> if you want to. So. You know, I think that your generation has a harder time being a professional athlete than before. You know, back when you think about like the Steffi Graf era and Kim Clijsters back in the day, they didn't have social media. They yeah. didn't have all these things um, to sort of like get in their brain. So yeah. from a coaching standpoint, it was easy. It's like, yeah. you're on the road with them, parents are at home, you can kind of control the messages and control like mm -hmm. the tone. But now, good practice, you go to dinner, you go in the room, and they wake up the next day and like something bad happened. Like what could have happened with you locked in your room last night? But it could be social media and messages. How do you manage that now? You know, like a lot of NBA players say during the playoffs, I don't check my phone. I like yeah. give my phone to my best friend and nobody asks for tickets, whatever. Yeah. How do you manage the outside forces? Um, is it just during tournament weeks you get rid of your phone? What do you, what, what's your tactic? Yeah, so I definitely, um, stay off my phone as much as I can. To be honest, social media, I personally don't like it because of all the external voices, but I know it's an amazing platform for myself to, you know, yeah, inspire others or for sponsor reasons. And that's basically what I use it for and, you know, to interact with fans. I try not to look through comments, like I said, or through messages. Uh, sometimes I like to go through messages and reply to some just so, you know, I get that interaction with my fans. I'm sure they appreciate that a lot. Um, but for sure, during a tournament, I try not to look at it. Um, if I have to post, I'll just post that and completely turn off my phone. Um, and that, I guess, starts just a little bit before the tournament. But yeah, it definitely was tough um, seeing some rude comments at times or some rude messages that can really fuck with your brain right. um but i have a really good team around me i have amazing people around me that help me stay grounded and i can't thank them enough for that i see abdul he always posts on his story messages i'm like oh Boy, he, my goodness he loves to talk to you through the internet doesn't he <laughs> He does. He does. I he know, uses right? his platform for something really good. He so, sends me those messages as well because he knows I don't like to look through social media. God bless him. He's, he's amazing. So there was like the song when I was growing up and it starts out like you walk in and I turn up 
And my kids, like my four-year-old, I played it one time in the car, and like every time I come home now, he's standing on the top of stairs, walking <laughs> in and I turn. Like, but when I think about you and sort of how you're able to maybe not play a ton of tournaments, but when you do play, you kind of show up. Uh, it speaks to obviously you said like your mental standpoint. How do you do that? Because you see a lot of some people need like a lot of matches to sort of get some momentum, you know, see the ball, feel the court, that kind of thing. What's your tactic to? You know, not playing for six months and then come up and send me your final. Oh, gosh. Um, well, I think that's how I was in 2019. I think 2020, um, let's just say it was a really tough year for me with a bunch of things. And I think that showed and just like continued to like creep in in 2019 because. I haven't played a lot this year as well, but at the same time, I didn't because, you know, I was losing first round, second round. Um, but we can leave that to the side for now. <laughs> but in 2019, I, I was just so happy to play. And I took every moment like it was my last whenever I stepped on that court because of all the injuries I had, I was like, at first, I was like, oh, what if like something happens again? I'm just going to give my best and whatever happens, happens. But um, that also, like being the underdog really helped as well because, you know, I wasn't really expecting anything and I was just going out there and playing my game. I think that's what happened in 2019. Coming back to 2021, people starting, or they're starting to know me. They're starting to know how I play. They're literally playing their best tennis against me every match I go into. And at this point, like, I'm expecting that. Like, I'm trying to be on my A game all the time. But sometimes that's not enough. And, you know, I had a lot of changes this year. New agency, new coach, um, a lot of new members on my team, not just that. But dealing with all of that and not playing in 2020 was a bit tough because I was always looking back at 2019. I was telling myself, oh, why can't I be or play like I was in 2019? But that was the problem. I was always looking back into the past, but I really had to realize that I'm a new person now. I've gone through so much, so much more than I have in 2019. And having that outlook changed everything for me. And that started happening after Wimbledon, preparing for the hard court season. And that's why I think I had better results than the past year, yeah. <laughs> So you talked about, it sounded like, you know, the hangover effect of 2018. So you see like Emma come, right? And sort of win, you know, third WTA tournament and then she wins a title. And, you know, for me, I looked at it and was like, oof, it's about to hit her, right? And so what advice would you have for a young player like you were who sort of had a good run, sort of magical sort of couple months, right? To dealing with what comes after. What, what advice would you give her? Good question. It's hard to give advice to someone that, you know, hasn't gone through, let's say, the aftermath because so many people have told me, you know, don't let it go to your head. Um, stay in the present moment. Don't get, you know, too caught up with like sponsors, money, whatever. Um, and, you know, I tried to take that advice, but it was hard sometimes. But now I realized going through that, that that's what I really had to do. So, I mean, if Emma can, you know, do what I just said, don't let it go to your head, um, 
continue to set goals for yourself, continue to aim higher and higher. Don't be satisfied unless your goal is to just win one Grand Slam, but I'm sure it's not. Because once you get the taste of that, you just you want it more and more. But you have to stay patient and just continue working hard. Yeah, I was, somebody asked me the same question. I said, uh, remain grateful. Because that too. Yep. It, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like you, 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 you know, the, the additional attention gets you there and move forward. You talked about how sometimes you felt stuck in 2019 and it was hard to move forward. Yeah. But that that was what I would say to her is remain grateful yeah uh and appreciate all the people to help you get there and yep. grateful for the opportunity right because it is hard oh, to yes. get back there you know what i it mean is. um they say it's easy to get there but harder to sustain it and i'm starting to realize that a lot um but i actually talk about gratefulness a lot i do this technique every morning at least most mornings where i just think about things that i'm grateful for um, and I think I did get away from that a little bit after what happened in 2019. So that's definitely a huge, huge tactic to use. <laughs> well, I'm grateful to spend this time with you. You're like one of the few players oh, I've never had yeah. like one-on-one -on -one time, never ran into your lobby, never on transport with you. Um, this so is great though. I appreciate the time uh, you spent with us and good luck for the rest of the year. Thank you very much. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. We also had a chance to sit down with Danielle Collins, Danimal, one of the most fearless and fiercest competitors on tour, very honest and open. And I think her personality is the reason why she is having the success that she is now. She is just fearless and, you know, quite frankly, just goes after it. And I think in this episode, she was so honest and she revealed, uh, she, you, were, you were easily able to connect her personality to her game. So take a listen. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have the extremely, extremely special Legendary personality, <laughs> most exciting player to watch, to interview, to talk to, Danielle Collins. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so I gotta, I gotta ask you if you could describe yourself in two words. What would they be? Tenacious D. <laughs> That's what I would describe myself as. Yeah. That so was my somebody, nickname as a kid. Tenacious D. Yep. I would go with that. Yep. I would say, if someone asked me, you know, what's Danielle like? I was like, I would say she's fearless. So, do you remember the first time we met? No. <laughs> first time we met, I was in Acapulco. Okay. Having my nightly drink. You know, male coaches, coaching girls, you know, you got to go always then, like, breathe and have a drink after a long <laughs> practice day. Was fighting. I there having a margarita? You were not there yet. So, I was sitting at a table by myself. And then you walked up and was like, is somebody sitting here? Well, now I am. Oh, I, was like, I don't remember 
for this. I was like, okay, I guess it's okay. And she's like, I'm just waiting for my coach to come down the elevator, but I'm going to sit here in the meantime. I'm okay. like, hi. And you're like, so what's your name? I was like, I'm Kamal. And he was like, I'm Danielle. I was like, I know who you are. And literally we sat there talking about your uncle from Chicago for like an hour. And I don't know what took your coach so long. He must have been showering, doing his hair, and doing his makeup or whatever. But we sat there. And, I was, and when you got up and left, I was like, that girl is fearless. She just sat down <laughs> at this table and started talking and like told me her whole life story and then got up and said, all right, I got to go now. Goodbye. I was like, that is fearless. I'm definitely pretty outgoing and very talkative. So I like to have some good chats. And I mean, you seemed like a great guy. So I was like, all right, I'm going to sit down with you and going to have a chat here. I think, yeah, Chicago roots too. So it's good. You just used me to pass the time for an hour <laughs> while you were waiting. On <laughs> it was an hour well spent, right? <laughs> it was an hour. And ever since then, every time we always sit down now and have adult conversations. I, know. I always say like there's like a few players on tour that are obviously active players and young but wise. And you're one of the ones where I would always enjoy sitting down and having like an adult conversation with. Do you think that your like maturity comes from your college experience, having played college tennis and having to have that experience? I'm not sure, to be honest. I mean, I think um, college definitely helped me uh, develop as a person, and, and it certainly helped uh, develop my game a little bit more. Um, but I think, you know, growing up with older parents, too, I think that that kind of made me into a bit of an old soul. Um, so I think that probably has more to do with it, my parents, more than anything, so, and growing up the way that I did, so. And you have a brother. Is your brother like you? My brother is totally opposite. He's way smarter than me. Um, much more cer cerebral. Um, yeah, he's almost like a genius. So, <laughs> yeah, very, very different. He um, didn't play as many sports growing up, but he's done some triathlons, and he's an athletic guy. Uh, we're about the same height. So, um, yeah, we're a little bit different, but we uh, are similar in some ways, too. Uh, we have a lot of fun together. He actually... Uh, came to the U.S. Open, um, well, the week before it started, and we were able to spend some time in Tribeca and got to go to our good foodie spots, and, yeah, we had a great time, and I think at the end of the year we'll do a brother-sister trip. We'd like to go to Alaska, but I don't know if that's going to be so good in November during the off-season. <laughs> so, um, no, it's it's great. My brother is a lot older than me. He's um, 42, so it's really special that we're able to have a close relationship, and, uh, yeah, that's what life's all about, right? <laughs> I was going to say, if he was younger, does he call his big sister and say, hey, big sis, I want a car. Can you buy me a car? <laughs> no, no, he doesn't do that. I'd actually call him if he asked for a car. <laughs> so or at least to help me find a good one. <laughs> do you have a car now? What? Do you have a car now? I do. And the last time I talked to you, you was like, you was like I don't own a car. Really? Like, How do you not no, own a car? No, I have a car. I was like, <laughs> I've always had a car. <laughs> I live like, in Florida because it would be impossible to not have a car in Florida. I know, there's no, like, you know, public transportation there. Yeah. <laughs> So you're famous for your fashion. And really? Oh, come on now. <laughs> okay. Well, well, that's what people say behind your back is that okay, you're a fashion okay. queen. Okay, All right. Like that girl can dress and she's got like high fashion sense. You know, when, what was your first big purchase? You know, when you, when you played on tour and you got your first big check and you made, let's say, your first couple million, like, you know what, now I'm going to go buy that purse that I probably shouldn't buy. What was your first big purchase? Mm, I don't know. I've had a few. <laughs> 
Not gonna lie, not gonna lie. I like to have fun and, and be able to treat myself to things. But, you know, I think the, the biggest thing when I first started making money is I didn't want to lose it. So I immediately knew I needed to get a financial advisor and somebody to help manage things so it could grow. But uh, I have treated myself to some nice things over the years, some nice jewelry. And um, that's probably one of my favorite things to uh, treat myself to, like nice diamonds. And diamonds? I love diamonds. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. <laughs> So I have quite the jewelry collection, I would say. Um, I've tried to kind of stay away from the jewelry stores just so that I <laughs> don't get myself in a dangerous position because it can be <laughs> it can be tough for a girl. And <laughs> well, what about your but shoes? I, uh, yeah, I like I, I love fashion. Like I love getting a nice handbag and wearing a nice dress and getting dressed up. And I mean, that's like one of the fun things we get to do like with the travel and being able to go out to nice restaurants and get to have all these experiences. And, and I think I've, my style has ventured out so much since uh, turning pro because I never really went out of the country until I was about 21. So, um, you know, I was a very American girl. <laughs> I feel like my style's ventured out a little bit since then. So I've uh, had some discoveries along the way and it's certainly one of my favorite pastimes uh, at the tournaments, being able to go shopping and get the get different designers and things that maybe I wouldn't be um, able to get like when I'm in the States. <clears throat> so what was the biggest purchase where now you look back like, oh, I shouldn't have bought that. I definitely overpaid for that. I wish I could take it back, but they won't take it back. Oh man, I like would hate to like say what it was publicly because my parents would be like, Danielle, what are you doing? <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I mean, I think, uh, there, there's been some handbags that, uh, yeah, definitely broke the bank. But, yeah, we won't, we won't talk about that as much. <laughs> and, and then the next week, you're like, oh, i got to win this tournament now because I just paid. I just bought that, and I probably shouldn't have. Yeah. <laughs> so you have um, – I've had the opportunity to coach against you one time, and it was, like, giving me nightmares <laughs> because I was like, she could come out there and just knock you off the court. No matter what you tell the person, there'd be nothing you could do. But you have one of the most famous – on-court coaching visits. And I think like all the broadcast networks are like, oh yeah, Daniel Collins is gonna have on-court coaching visits. There's gonna be like some exciting back and forth. So I remember Charleston. Yeah. 2019, 2020, yep. whatever. Okay. And you were like, tell me I'm right. I'm right. <laughs> so, and I thought about it because you just said your brother's more cerebral, but you went to UVA, which is a difficult school to get into. You, your intellect from our conversation seems like super high IQ. And in that visit, I was like, oh, Danielle, no. And most tennis players have a high IQ in general because you got to be able to think or whatever. So that was like, tell me about that. You know, because sometimes, you know, as a coach, I feel like you all call us out there so you could talk and we can just listen. <laughs> Do you feel like that's why you use the visits? You know, well, I've been traveling by myself for the last couple of months. Um, and won so a tournament I by yourself one two by myself so that was pretty spectacular um i definitely think there's like a reason for that i mean i think in some ways i actually focus better when i'm on my own and having to think about things um independently rather than like relying on somebody else for information i, I that's just me that's kind of where i'm at right now but um yeah i don't know uh sometimes i i feel like when i um 
call somebody out for on-court coaching, it just turns into a full blown out <laughs> venting session, you know? So I, I don't know if it's good for me or anybody. It's like, <laughs> I, I kind of tell myself now, I'm like, if I call somebody out on the court for coaching, nobody wins. I don't win. They don't win. The viewers probably don't win either. <laughs> they love it. The viewers love it. The coach is just sitting there taking it on the chin, like, let me just accept it. Let me just yeah, take I think it. my ego definitely got in the way a little bit there, if I'm being honest, um, for sure. Uh, yeah, but you know, we all have our moments. It's just mine happens sometimes publicly. <laughs> it's, it's like the gift and the curse. The gift of the sport is that you get to make money and be famous, and the curse is that it all happens in front of the world. Yeah. So when I look at your results, you've had five top 10 wins in Australia, which is amazing. What is it about that place? Every place, you know, every player has someplace special, right? Where it's like, I love the hotels there, I love the shopping, I love the food, my favorite restaurant, blah, blah, blah. What is it about Australia that just makes you into a animal? I think it's so similar to the States in a lot of ways. I think they have amazing food. Um, it's an incredible, like Melbourne, and such an incredible city. And then when you're in Brisbane and you're in Sydney and in Adelaide, you're in other cool places. And Brisbane was one of my favorite tournaments, um, being so close to uh, Noosa and Myron Bay and being able on the off days to sneak out over and go to those uh, surf towns. Um, it's just something, those are some of some experiences I never had before. Um, I didn't get to go to Australia as a kid or anything like that. And so as an adult, to be able to see that part of the world, I think I just have so much excitement and enthusiasm when I go over there because it's just one of the most beautiful countries I've ever been to. And uh, really great fan base. I feel like when you're playing there, people are so respectful. They appreciate tennis players and athletes so much. And I think as um, you know, players, we really feel that from the fans. I think we love playing in front of the crowd there. and. Um, I always feel like I have a lot of great support and um, yeah, it's just a, one of my fav favorite places to play too with the climate as well. It's very similar to Florida um, with the humidity and I, I think so much of me when I'm over there, it reminds me of, of being at home. So you are one of those people, like when you were sort of ascending to where you are now, when you were like 50, 60 and you weren't seated, people were like, please don't let me play Danielle, right? She grew up beating me, and no matter what she's ranked, she always beats me. So who's that player for you that when the draw comes out, you're like, please don't let me play this person? None of them. Oh. <laughs> I'll I, take anybody. I love that answer. <laughs> Nobody. Nobody. Oh my God. I'm fearless. See? Bring it on. I, you know, I think that's something as like athletes, you, you have to embrace. You got to embrace whoever you're playing. And it's just another opportunity. It's another fun chance to try to get a win. And, and honestly, some of my most fun matches have been ones that I've lost. I mean, I've had some incredible, uh, incredible matches where I've, I've lost just by a little bit. And uh, those are some of my most memorable matches. I can go down the list. Um, so I just love competing and going out there and putting on a show for people and, and uh, making it fun to watch. Um, you know, I just try to go out and do my best. And I love the competition. It doesn't matter who I'm playing. I could go out, uh, you know, at a, at a women's open event or I could go out against a bunch of your juniors here and, and I'm still going to try to win and I'm going to um, try to make it fun. So. So you talk about some of those close losses and your ability to move on. As a coach, sometimes we feel like this guilt. Like if you lose like five, I'm like, oh, if I had just told her that on the do side, she's going to serve wide, just to take a step over when she needs a point, da, da, da. We have this guilt and it like stays with us so long. Or if you're like up five, 
two in the third and lose the match, we have like this anger that stays with us. When you have one of those close losses you talked about, what do you do to move on? Is it like, I go buy a bag, I go buy a pair of shoes, what do you do? <laughs> What's your bounce back? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of times when, when you lose the close matches and the margins, it speaks so much volume to, to the level of play on both sides. And I, I really mean that genuinely. I played a match against a uh, fellow American um, in uh, Montreal, and I, I lost 7-5 in the third uh, to Jessica Pagula. And, you know, it was just such a high-level match from both of us. I mean, I certainly had opportunities where things could have gone a different way. And um, she played so well, I, I played a really high level too. And, you know, in that moment, I, I can't really be mad at myself if we're playing that kind of tennis. I mean, that's ultimately what you want um, individually, but you also want it for the sport in general. And, um, you know, I can walk away when it's a, when I play a hard fought match, uh, knowing that I did everything that I could and, and genuinely be happy about it. Um, I don't hang my head over those ones too much. Now, if I get blown off the court like two and oh, I'm going to hang my head over that. But if I put up a good fight and do everything that I possibly can, I can walk away being pretty happy about it. And, um, you know, I had a match against, I think, Barty and Adelaide, not this year, but the year before. And the similar, I think I lost seven, six in the tie break. And, um, you know, I, I wish I would have won the match, but at the end of the day, it was one of the most fun, um, one of the toughest battles I played, and something I'll always remember, even though I lost the match. So you, um, then yeah, you had like a little health scare, and the whole tennis world was concerned and tweeting, and we love you, get well soon, that kind of thing. <laughs> Tell us a little about about uh, your health scare this year. Yeah, um, I mean, it had kind of gone on for a couple of years and then just progressively got worse. It got to the point where I couldn't, um, you know, I was having to pull out of tournaments. I was having to not practice during the times that I was having my cycle. And uh, it was just total havoc. Um, and it was hard, but like within an Olympic year to kind of have to say, okay, I got to have this surgery and, and miss half of my season. Um, but ultimately, that's what I had to do because I just wouldn't be able to play at the level that I'd want to be at if I didn't have the surgery. So, well, it was very nerve-wracking going into it, but I also kind of thought, okay, um, it can only get better, right? I mean, it, I was kind of at rock bottom with my health and, and just the way I was feeling pretty much three weeks out of the – two to three weeks out of the month. And, uh, I mean, I'm just so glad now that I've kind of turned over a new leaf, and I think – the surgery is ultimately kind of like what helped me uh, win the two tournaments back to back because um, with the fluctuation I used to have and the everything that was going on in that area, um, I just was not able to perform consistently day after day. Um, and that was really frustrating as an athlete. It puts so much hard work into what I do physically and mentally and then to have, you know, my cycle affect me so negatively to where I literally couldn't perform at even 50% of the level that I knew I was capable of playing. It was really frustrating. So I'm just like very grateful for my surgeon and being able to be in good hands with a great medical team and, and to be able to get that surgery when I had it because um, I, you know, want to be able to start a family one, one day and that was a big concern. Um, and it looks like I'll, I should be able to do that. So um, yeah, I hope that Oh, that's good. <laughs> well, I got three kids, so two okay. of them, one four and one six, so I can drop them off and you can get your feet wet, like right now. You know? <laughs> okay, I've done some babysitting duties, so they'd be in good hands. We'd have fun, play some tennis, eat some pizza and chicken tenders. <laughs> Sounds good to me. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And lastly, we've got Donna Vekic. Donna Karen, I call her. Somebody that is well known for her high fashion, uh, her love of food and good wine, uh, and quite frankly, her grass court play. I mean, she is somebody that when the Wimbledon draw comes out, no one wants to see her. She's had great success on grass. Uh, her game style is suited for that surface. Uh, and that's ultimately probably where she will eventually win her first slam. Uh, a tough competitor, a sleeper in every draw, and just a great friend. And I really enjoyed this time here with Donna, and I think you will as well. All right, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have a very special guest, one of my favorite players on the tour. One of, did she roll her eyes at me? One of the funniest uh, <laughs> and coolest people on the tour, the Croatian legend, Donna Bekic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. This is probably the nicest introduction I've ever got from the nicest person. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> your, your wine drinking buddy. You remember that time we went to the vineyard? I do. I do. What about the cocktails in US Open last year? Oh, that was a secret. In the, I guess, I'm oh. just kidding. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know, so my drinking buddy. But now, you know, we got to clean it up for the camera. Um, so the first question I want to ask is, pre-COVID, you were like top 20 in the world and you were like rolling and you know, one of the things that every career needs is like momentum. So how, what did you do during COVID? I know you were like, when COVID hit, you were like, damn, I was just kind of like getting rolling. <laughs> yeah, uh, I spent three months in my hometown in Croatia with my parents, with my family. So it was uh, very strange. The first couple of weeks I was going crazy, but then, you know, you get used to everything. And after that, you know, when the tour started again, there was no crowd, which was really it was horrible um so that was uh, you know we were just hoping by the end of last year that things were going to go back to normal this year and now they kind of are but there's still a lot of restrictions and australia was tough and yeah and then i had a knee surgery so i i don't know i it's tough to say if the covid break affected that but i mean we'll never know it was my first big injury so when you're in australia were you on the hard lockdown or the semi-lockdown no thank god i wasn't yeah. I was in the in the semi. Yeah, I was hard locked down, two weeks, didn't anticipate it, stuck there. No windows, <laughs> food, government cheese being delivered to your front door. I was in that one. That was that was tough. That was tough. That was tough. That was tough. But you know, like Billie Jean King says, champions adjust, so you gotta adjust with it. <laughs> so you mentioned going back to your hometown and being with your parents. Your dad and your mom are probably the nicest people in the world. They're like always there but you never hear them and you never see them you see your dad with his blue jeans on <laughs> and his white collared shirt and his blue sweater on top of his collared shirt and he gives you like the hug of your life i was like you would have sworn i played juniors with donna and like he was there every time but you he, and my dad hugged oh i get hugged i get hugged from dad and mom so when i look at the, your parents i'm like there's no way they produced a top 25 tennis player because most tennis parents are like 
foot on your neck, kicking you in the pants, like pushing you towards it. So how were they as tennis parents? Because they don't seem like over the top. Well, first, thank you for, again, nice words. Um, but yeah, they, they were always there throughout my career. They still are, uh, not so much anymore because of the travel restrictions and uh, all of that. But uh, they always supported me, but they never pushed me. I, my goal was to be a top tennis player and they always guided me throughout my career, my life which things I should do, which things I shouldn't do. But, you know, they also accepted and allowed me to make my own mistakes, which I guess, uh, you know, every every child has to do. And it's uh, tough for every parent to to watch and allow because, you know, you, as a parent, you obviously know a lot more than uh, than the child. So uh, it's tough to, to stay back sometimes. And, yeah, I mean, for sure we had our, our fights and everything, but uh, we have an amazing relationship. Very cool. So when you think about your game, like when the first time I saw you play, I was like, oh, she's probably a killer on grass. But when you look at your results, you've been to the fourth round of every slam. So it's shown that you like can play everywhere uh, and on every surface. But what, which of the four slams is like the one where you really look forward to? Definitely Wimbledon. Um, I love playing on grass, but yeah, it's like you said, I. I enjoy all the surfaces now, um, and but Wimbledon is, is special. You know, you wear all the all whites. You it's has the tradition. I mean, things are a little bit complicated there. Um, you have to beg and cry for the tickets. But <laughs> <laughs> other than that, uh, it's a it's a special special experience. So you talked about Wimbledon and the four tickets. We think about like I think about the slams. I don't really think about the venue. All the venues are comparable. Right, I think about the hotels, the restaurants, the shopping, the nightlife. And like as a coach, you always think about which environment does my player sort of favor? Because some places is like, yeah, I don't like this place, I'm ready to go home, right? Okay. And then you see the results kind of resemble the I'm ready to go home kind of feel, <laughs> right? And then some are like, ah, I like this place, I wanna stay and I'm gonna win, right? Um, what is like the ideal environment for you? Like just sort of the vibe where you've seen or where you think that you'll thrive in the most? Um, I definitely don't thrive in the bubbles. <laughs> <laughs> um, that was a, every time we had a bubble was a, was a, I think my results were not so good. So it was a, it was not my kind of environment, but uh, I, I'm not a bit of big on nightlife, but I like to go out for dinners. I like to go out for a walk in the city. Like I told you, I'm so amazed with Chicago. It's, uh, I think probably the, I would say nicest city in America. Um, I, I really, you know, I've been here for a couple of days and I really enjoyed it. Uh, and I hope I will stay long. So I feel like this is kind of the city I could thrive in. I got a long list of restaurants that I <laughs> was gonna text you and say, all right, you gotta go here, go here, go here. So, but wait, you, I have a question for you. Uh, Is that bring it on? Which which uh, environment would you say, like for as a coach, you would like your player to be in? So I would say U.S. Open is hard to manage. Yeah. The traffic, food poisoning, restaurants, <laughs> you know, just super yeah. busy. Uh, I would say Aussie Open is tough because your body never gets adjusted and you're so far away from home. So like if you still have like family at home, you end up being up all night when it's daytime there. So I'm always sleepy. I know I'm known as like the sleepy coach, right? <laughs> all of the end I sleep. 
But like that one, I'm like always tired. I would say Wimbledon is probably the most prestigious and the most serene. But in terms of like the off-court stuff, it's easy to manage from a coach perspective, but I think it's a little sleepy. A little sleepy. And I think French Open is like the perfect mix. Okay. You can shop. You know, you can like tell your player, hey, if you get far, I'll go half with you on the Birkin bag. You know, you get like, <laughs> you get like little incentives where you can say, you know, let's stay a long time. We get to, we went to Miss Cole, but we went to Korean barbecue. We have like five more restaurants we got to go to. So we got to keep winning so we can go to those five restaurants. Yeah, Paris, Paris is a cool city. There's amazing restaurants, amazing shopping. I, yeah. So I would say Paris is like the perfect mix. Okay. Um, but you know, they, they're all like present their challenges. Uh, I would say Paris is the hardest one to get practice courts at. So that one is a little more challenging for a coach to like make sure you line up practice and you know that kind of thing. But like after you leave the venue, Paris is like perfect. And everything's walking distance. Where New York That's is true. You know, cab and Uber. I think my Uber bill, US Open is probably like nine hundred bucks. <laughs> it's like you don't have to go far, but it's just you know But what's your phone bill in Australia then? Oh, <laughs> oh don't even don't even I don't think I even made enough in bonus to even cover the phone bill in Australia. <laughs> so when you think about you know, like your career now, and you're like the, like the elder statesman, even though you're only like 25, like people think of Donna Vekic, uh, and they know like she's somebody always that hovers between 25 and 40, uh, and she's always somebody we like, she needs to be 20 in the world so she can be seated so I don't have to play her first round. Who's the person that when the draw comes out, you're looking like, please don't let me play her? Who's the one person that just gives you a hard time? And not that you always lose, but it's just always a tricky match. I mean, I think this year, I lost to her three or four times. It's Pliskova, Karolina. Um, we always have good matches, and she's a great friend of mine, and we always practice together. And yeah, since this, this year, I played her French first round. I was supposed to play her in Eastbourne first round, but I actually was withdrew. Uh, then I played her second round in Wimbledon. I played her second round in Montreal. <laughs> And I think there's for sure one more time in, in, in the year. Um, so yeah, I played her a couple of times, so I definitely don't want to see her for, for, uh, for a while. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Ons Jabur, she's a really tricky player. So yeah, probably her. Yeah, those are Pliskova's ones where it's like, you know, you, you can't get broken. Because if you get broken, yeah. she's going to win. And Ons is just like, all right, she's gonna drop shot, lie me to death, <laughs> chip me, roll me, all kinds of things. She's gonna so. make you play bad. That's she's gonna make you play bad, yeah. exactly. I, I guess Sue as well. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Ask Venus about that one. That was like, well, <laughs> uh, you know, Sue is definitely a tough one. Well, thank you for joining us. We've enjoyed having you on. I will send you the dinner list. Make okay. Make sure you have a good experience and you come back next time. I will for sure. Thank, thank you. you.